what spiritual disciplines are you building into your life today that will enable you to finish strong for God at the end? We spend so much time in life focused on the here and now, the present. We've got to get this done before 4 p.m. We've got to send this email out. We have to um, you know, pick up the kids. We have to cook a meal. We have to do all this stuff. And it's very easy for us to get so caught up in the rush of today. And one day just sort of blurs into the next and before you know it, you, you blink, and those little babies that you were rocking in your arms are graduating from high school, and you, you literally don't know what happened. In fact, you and your spouse look at each other and go, this is not possible. Mm-hmm. Just the other day, um, we were talking about this, you know, that I, I have a daughter who's 29 years old and a son who's 26. It's not, it is not possible. There's been a glitch in the matrix somewhere <laughs> along the way, and I've lost a lot of time. But see, what that should do for us, it should, it should be a pretty startling reminder that there's more than the now. Somewhere down the road, maybe an hour from now, maybe 50 years from now, for all of us, we're going to come to the end of life. And we will either step into eternity with a humble heart of gratitude, be able to honestly say, Lord, you know, I really messed up a bunch and I let you down so often, but I sure did my best for you. I gave everything I had for you, for your service, for your kingdom. And even though it's not much, it was my all. Or, We are possibly going to stand there looking down at the floor in embarrassment and wonder why we didn't live more for him. We need to know that finishing well has never once happened by accident. No one in the history of the world has ever accidentally finished well. It comes only by consistent discipline. So as we begin this morning, let me ask you again, what are you intentionally doing today? What are you building into your life today that will enable you to finish strong for God? In our journey through the Bible We paused in Jeremiah 25 a while back because that was 605 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar came down, invaded Judah, and took some people captive back to Babylon, including a young man, a teenager named Daniel. And so we began looking at the life of Daniel, a man who shows us what it looks like to live well and to finish strong for God. And we're going to focus on Daniel chapter 6 today, but... I want to take just a very quick moment to do a flyover of chapter 5 because there's an important transition, historical transition, that takes place. So the last time we were talking about Daniel, which I know we've had a bunch of special services come up with baptisms and communion and the music service and, uh, and all of that, but the last time we were in Daniel, 
Daniel was serving under the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. Now, here uh, in chapter 5, we don't read of Nebuchadnezzar anymore because he has died and a man named Belshazzar is king of Babylon. And in chapter 5, you're familiar with the story, I'm sure, Belshazzar throws this drunken party and he, during the party, gives an order for his men to go and uh, bring the gold and silver vessels that King Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple of God back in Jerusalem. Go and get those sacred vessels, bring them to the party, and Belshazzar and all of his guests drank wine from those sacred vessels while they were worshiping their pagan gods. And after he does this, another uh, I mean, bizarre, is there any other word? Another bizarre uh, event occurs. A man's hand appears in the room, and it begins writing something on the wall. And it says that when Belshazzar saw this, his knees knocked together. By the way, there's a whole bunch of cliches that we use today that originate in God's word. But that probably doesn't mean anything. Um, it's amazing how much of daily life comes from, from the Bible. It says his knees knocked together and he just, he sort of turned to jelly. I mean, he was terrified. So he called for all of his um, astrologers and sorcerers to come in and look at this, what had been written on the wall and give him an interpretation of what it meant, but none of them could interpret it. And then someone remembered that there was this man named Daniel who a long time ago had interpreted a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. So they sent for Daniel. They brought him in, and God gave him the interpretation of the writing. And here's what it said. You, Belshazzar, have not... Now, by the way, Daniel is now called by God to speak these words to the most powerful man on earth who is not a believer. Okay. You, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and you have profaned his name by using the holy vessels from the temple. And then he says this, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting or found lacking. So your kingdom has been divided, past tense, and given to the Medes and the Persians. I'm sorry, I didn't have a slide for that. <clears throat> but then it says this at the end of the chapter, chapter 5, verse 30 and 31. It says this, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, Babylonians, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. This event here marks the end of the Babylonian Empire and the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire, ruled, first of all, by King Darius here in Babylon. Now, uh, I would love to, but I don't have time to go back and really highlight the significance of what we've just seen, of what has just taken place. The Babylonian Empire, greatest empire on the face of the earth, has just fallen in one night. And the Medo-Persians, out of all the empires, are the ones 
who have come in and taken over and taken the throne. Why is that significant? Well, weeks ago, we looked at the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had of that enormous gold, uh, uh, 90-foot statue with a head of gold, uh, the uh, chest and arms of silver, the belly of bronze, the legs of iron, the feet of clay and iron. And it, we, we were told that the head of gold is very clear. Uh, Daniel said to King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Babylon is the head of gold. Right below that was the chest and arms of silver, which we know historically was referring to the Medo-Persian Empire. And when Daniel was interpreting that dream for Nebuchadnezzar, he said, a giant rock came and smashed this statue to pieces. And what this was, was a picture of progressive empires that were going to rise and fall until that great stone that had come and crushed the statue, who was Christ, his kingdom would be set up, and it said it would fill the whole earth. And so what have we just seen happen? We've seen the first step of fulfillment in Daniel, Daniel's uh, interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The head of gold, Babylon, has just fallen. Who took their place? Oh, just randomly, the Medo-Persians. And so here we are now. We come to chapter 6. And <clears throat> I think it's important to know that since the time Daniel was taken captive from Jerusalem to the time we arrive here at chapter 6, some 70 years have gone by. Um, I really hate to be the one to shatter your childhood memories of Sunday school, but most of you were probably taught that Daniel was a young teenager when he went into the lion's den. Maybe you even had the little flannel graph things you remember being moved around on the board. Man, that was high-tech stuff back then, right? You were sitting there like, ooh, he moved. Um, um, but you know, I remember seeing and hearing about this young man named Daniel who was thrown into the lion's den. I hate to be the one to tell you, but Daniel, at this point, was in his mid-80s, maybe his late 80s. So it changes the picture just a little bit. Let's pick up in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, or princes is the word, to be over the whole kingdom, and over these, three governors, of whom Daniel was one, and this, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. Now, um, remember, Daniel was a captive from Jerusalem. He was an outsider. He was not from Babylon. But he had conducted himself over the years so well that he'd been promoted to one of the top three officials in all of Babylon. But even among those three, we're told that Daniel stood out. Look at verse 3. Then Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. I believe that's the fourth or fifth time we've seen that uh, phrase used. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So Daniel was on his way to becoming the second most powerful man in all of Babylon in the Medo-Persian Empire. But not everybody was happy about that. 
These other leaders, we find out, were furious that this foreigner was about to become their boss, that he was being promoted above them. And so they got together and they put a plan in place to get rid of Daniel. Verse 4. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault. Because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Verse 6, so these governors and satraps assembled together before the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever. That was just what you said to the king. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever prays to any god or any man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. It's amazing. These guys searched everywhere to find one bit of dirt on Daniel. One bit of evidence of wrongdoing in his personal life or his professional life. And they couldn't find a thing. You see, unlike a lot of people... Daniel didn't wear his religion like a coat that he put on on Sunday morning. I'm just putting it in our terms. That he put on on Sunday morning and wore to church and then took off as soon as he got home and lived as another person the rest of the week. His faith in God governed every area of his life. And when these crooked officials realized that, they suddenly knew exactly how to get Daniel by attacking his faith. Guys, I'll tell you what, if the only, the only bad thing that the world can say about you and me is that we trust in God, then have at it. Imagine such a life. Daniel's an extraordinary man in history, and God puts him here as an example for all of us. And he is, as were several people through the Old Testament, Daniel is one of the pictures, one of the types, one of the forerunners of Christ himself. So many events in his life mirror the events of the life of Christ. So these guys knew that if they could could put a law in place to make it illegal to pray to the God of heaven... Daniel would never obey that law, and they would have him trapped. Um, I could spend a lot of time right here on this. Can I just ask you, hypothetically, what would happen if we woke up tomorrow morning 
And every headline from coast to coast said, the United States government has issued a mandate that it is illegal to pray to God. All those who do will be arrested and sent to prison. You go, oh, that's funny, man. You know, that'll never happen here. You know, I don't want to be a doomsdayer at all. But have you been awake the last few years? Have you seen the things that have been put in place in this country? Have you heard the things that have been said by even the man in the White House? That you and I, as conservative Christians, are the greatest threat to democracy? You and I are, apparently. What would we do in that case? What would we do if they said, um, we've determined that um, you cannot go to church anymore. You cannot pray to God. You cannot own a Bible. I know it's so far out there that we have a hard time even processing that and imagining what we would do. What would it take for you to compromise your faith? Would it take no prayer, no church, no Bible? Or would it just be something that um, took away your convenience, took away your freedom? These are questions um, I hope that you will just be tucking away just for thought. And I pray to God we will never need to think very seriously on these. But I encourage you just to process them and then maybe, you know, put them in your back pocket for some time. So these men came and they presented this very flattering proposal to the king. And it was sort of like, oh, king, you are the greatest guy around. And we don't think you should just be a king. We think you should be a god. And so how about we run this trial for the next 30 days, put a law in place that any person who prays to anyone but you will be thrown to the lion's den. And sadly, the king's pride got the best of him. And he signed the decree into law without even considering the consequences. That one verse flows straight into the next. They presented this, and it says, and then he signed it into law. You see, he had fallen captive to a very dangerous trap that's still a very dangerous trap today. He had allowed the praise of those around him to distort his thinking. Let me give you some extremely helpful advice. God brought this to my heart years ago, and I'm telling you, I think about it so often, it stays with me like a tattoo. Don't take people's criticism too seriously or their praise. Don't allow the opinion of others to shape who you become. 
It can happen easily. I've seen it happen both ways. I've seen criticism destroy a person's future because they bought into it. They, they internalized it. They took it personally. They said, well, obviously that's who I am. I'm, you know, they had a father who said, you're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. I've met 40, 50-year-old men who had things like that said to them by their father when they were five or six or eight. And they've been fighting to, to not become that person every day ever since. Criticisms of others. They took it too seriously. M- may I also caution you that praise is dangerous? Oh, Phil, you're the greatest guy ever. Look, I mean, I know I am, but I'm, <laughs> somebody's got to draw the line here. You know how dangerous it is? I've had people years past who praised me and said, oh, man, you are something. (laughs) And you turn around, and they're stabbing you in the back. They're cursing you. Don't take people's criticism too seriously or their praise. You want to know how to get an accurate view of yourself? Stay in God's word. Oh, that's a typical thing for a pastor to say. Yep, if I were not a pastor tomorrow, I would tell you the same thing. Stay in God's word. You know why? That remarkable book can help you in both directions. Look, if you are broken and torn down and weak and worn and weary and ready to give up, that book will lift you up. But if you are proud and arrogant and self-sufficient and cocky, that book will tear you down and bring you to your proper place. Stay in God's word. You young couples, how do you figure life out? Stay in God's word. Stay in God's word. Well, here's a question for you, though. If Daniel was such an honest man and such a trusted leader, why in the world did these other officials hate him so much? Well, the answer is very simple, and we see it all around us still to this day. You see, if you always tell the truth, you really annoy people who lie. If you refuse to gossip with the group, the people who do gossip do not want you in their group. If if all the men in your workplace are running around on their wives and going to strip clubs, and you're the one who doesn't, without saying a word, you bring conviction to their heart. You bother them. Students, if you've committed yourself to not cheat on exams, then you trouble the conscience of the students who do cheat. See, some people will be inspired by your integrity. Others will be intimidated by it. Don't be impressed by the first, and don't be threatened by the second. You just live your life for God and let the chips fall where they may. There have been occasions in my life where I've had to have discussions about something going on, and Phil, you know, if, if, if you continue to stand for this, then, uh, you know, we may lose this family over here. And I just go, see you later. Have a nice trip. We, we must, 
We must build lives of such character for God, such integrity, that whether it's at church, with our family, at school, at the golf club, at work, nothing, and I mean nothing that comes along, is going to cause us to bend those convictions, to stray from our commitment to God. We're just going to stand. We're just going to stand. If someone you know, threatens your life and says, you're going to die if you don't back off of this. You go, I'm kind of looking forward to heaven anyway. Boy, the world needs more believers like that. Well, this, this new law has now been put into effect. We pick up in verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with the windows open toward Jerusalem, He knelt down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since his early days. Now, this seems bizarre to us. It's like, what is Daniel putting on a show? Why would he open his windows and pray sort of looking out the window? No, it wasn't an ego thing at all. This goes all the way back to 2 Chronicles When the temple was built, Solomon dedicated the temple, and God said to the people, wherever you are, when you pray, you turn towards the temple. If you're 50 miles away, if you're 500 miles away, you turn towards the temple, and you pray in that direction. Why? Because at that time in history, the presence of God resided in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, upon the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. That's where the presence of God dwelled. And it's a reminder, when you pray, you don't pray to Mother Mary, you don't pray to Buddha, you don't pray to Muhammad, you direct your prayers to the God of heaven. And this is simply what Daniel is doing. All Israelites who loved God did this same thing. Now, I'm convinced that this verse here, verse 10, is the key verse in the entire book Uh, in the the entire chapter of um, Daniel chapter 6. The most important thing in this book has nothing to do with the lion's den. It has everything to do with godly character. And this verse highlights it right here. Daniel, we need to know this. Daniel knew that this law had been put in place. It's not like he missed the announcement and prayed and was like, oh, man, I am sorry. I didn't, I didn't see the flyer. You know, I'm, please forgive me. No, it tells us he knew the law had been put in place, that it was illegal to pray. Not only illegal to pray, but it came with the death penalty to pray. Think about how easy it would have been for Daniel to say, well, you know, listen, I'm more valuable to God alive than I am dead. So let's be reasonable about this. How about, I mean, it's just for 30 days. How about if I just pray quietly in my heart? I mean, come on. Or, or how about I draw the curtains? I'm still facing towards the temple I mean, are, are we going to nitpick over details like that? How easy it would have been for him to come up with some kind of convenient compromise to avoid this hassle 
But what he did instead, he prayed anyway. He opened the windows, he got on his knees three times a day, and he prayed to his God, and it didn't bother him at all. He wasn't praying and then sort of opening one eye and looking out there on the street and going, man, I hope, hey, I'm just down here, you know, just drop something. He prayed to the God of heaven, and he didn't care what happened. But you have to wonder, how in the world was Daniel able to remain so strong in the face of such a threat? Well, that answer was given to us in verse 10. Let's go back to verse 10 and highlight that last phrase. I want to read this again. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, comma, as was his custom since his early days. What did we see in Daniel's life way back when he was a teenager? Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. As a young teenage boy, Daniel had already made up his mind that no matter what came his way, he was going to stand true for God. You say, well, Phil, that's great. I'm way past a teenager, and I never made that commitment when I was a teenager. Well, then you know what? Today is the next best time to do it. Today is the next best time. So let me ask you again. What godly disciplines and commitments are you building into your life every day that will enable you to stand firm when real trials come? This character didn't rise out of Daniel. This character wasn't created in Daniel when the trial came. It was revealed in Daniel. It had been there all along. As I said earlier, no one stands through trials. No one finishes strong by accident. There must be a foundation there to hold us in those times. Well, for time's sake, let me just summarize quickly verses 11 to 17. So these men who wanted to entrap Daniel were told they, they gathered together. They, they, they went to where he lived. And they saw him praying to his God just like he always did. And then they ran to the king to tattle on him. They said, uh, you know, remember, king, uh, the law says that any person who prays to anyone but you will be fed to the lions. And, uh, you know, we saw this guy today with his windows open, this Hebrew fella praying to his God, defying your law, um, what was his name? Bill, what was his name? Uh, I think it was uh, Daniel. Yeah, Daniel. They knew exactly what was going on. They couldn't wait to, to uh, destroy this guy's life. And they said to the king, hey, look, I know he's one of your men, but the law is the law. You have to throw him in the lion's den. And we're told in these verses that when King Darius heard this, his his heart sank. He really, I believe he really loved Daniel. He really respected Daniel and admired him 
And he suddenly realized that his own foolish pride was the thing that had caused him to have this terrible lapse of judgment. And he was so worried about it, he, he called in legal experts, he tried everything he could to, to save Daniel, but the law of the Medes and Persians is unique in all of history in, in that not even the king could revoke a law once it had been put in place. And it's gotten the name the law of the Medes and Persians because it's that notable. Now, <clears throat> Go with me to verse 16. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, watch this, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lord's that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Verse 18, Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought to him, you know, no late-night entertainment, and his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and hurried to the den of lions, and when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel and said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? If I were Daniel, I would have waited a really long time. Because <laughs> that's just my sense of humor. Verse 21. Then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent before him, and also, O king, I've done no wrong before you. What an incredible thing. Uh, I've, I've been up close to lions in Africa. My dad and I had an encounter with one that I don't have time to tell you. But, but if you've ever been near enough to a full-grown male lion and you've heard the full-volume roar, um, it is terrifying beyond comprehension. The, I don't know all the music terms, but there's a bass in the roar of a lion that is deeper than anything I've ever heard. It rattles your bones. And it's, you know, God made them that way. He's the king of the jungle. When he roars, you know, it, it freezes the prey. And Daniel's dropped into this thing I would love to have some more detail on how this went. Um, I don't know if he got down there and the, you know, a lion ran up to him and was like, mm -mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it happened. You know, after a minute or two, the lions are looking at each other like, what? What's going on? This guy's delicious. I... <laughs> or maybe they just weren't hungry. You know, the amazing thing here, the king had a sleepless night. I believe Daniel slept like a baby. So the king immediately commanded for Daniel to be brought up out of the lion's den. And it says, no injury whatsoever was found on him. And this is so often taught 
You know, boys and girls, if you dare to be a Daniel, if you just live like Daniel, God will rescue you from all your problems and troubles. Man, oh man. That might teach good in a Sunday school class, but that is not true. God rescued Daniel from the lion's den. Elisha, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, trusted God his whole life, died of an illness on his bed. Paul the Apostle, greatest missionary ever lived, had his head chopped off in prison for his faith. James was killed with the sword. Stephen was stoned to death. Peter was crucified upside down. John was boiled in hot oil. Do I need to go on? The moral of this story is not that if you trust God like Daniel, he will deliver you from everything. God is not going to deliver you from everything. And we must trust him either way. If the news comes back to us of something we do not want to hear, do we flinch and grow angry at God? How dare you? Why would you let this come into my life? I haven't missed church in three months. <laughs> or do we feel the pain, process through that, and say, God, you know what? It doesn't matter what you bring. Nothing is going to shake my faith in you. And then the king commanded that all of those crooked men who tried to frame Daniel and their families, I'm sorry, and their families were thrown into the den of lions. And the Bible tells us that before they, before their bodies even touched the floor, the lions crushed their bones. And then in an amazing turn, King Darius commanded that every person far and near worship the God of Daniel because he is the living God. Now I'm done. I just, I, I want to just take a couple minutes here at the end and have us pause and think about some things. There's so much that could be said from this chapter. I've left more out than I have been able to say, but let's try to make this real for us best we can. I want you to just think about Daniel's life. Let's, you know, let's not make a, a Hallmark movie out of this where everything comes together perfectly in the last two minutes of the movie. Just think about Daniel's life. Ripped from his home as a young boy. Taken captive to a foreign land for the rest of his life, never to see his family again. They changed his name. They changed his education. They tried to force him into paganism. And they tried to kill him simply for being upright and honest. Do you not think after all that, we could have excused Daniel for saying, you know what, God? I don't think you care about me at all. Look at what you've let happen to my life. 
My whole life has been ruined because I trusted in you. Would we have maybe given him a tiny margin to go, yeah, I kind of see your point. Instead, Daniel continued to trust wholeheartedly in God, despite the fact that it was that very same God who had taken everything he loved away. The only reason Daniel was in captivity was because it was God's judgment upon the land that had sent him into captivity. You see, listen, I want you to see this. Daniel's faith wasn't weakened by the discipline of God or by the demands of men. He had made a commitment very early on in his life, regardless of what I gain or lose, no matter if I am suffering or if I'm at ease, whether I live or die, I treasure God above everything else, and my first allegiance will always be to him. And that is what enabled him to live well and to finish strong, regardless of his circumstances. Can I just say, that's what I want for my life. I've tried all the other stuff. Feels great for a while. But man, does it leave you empty when it's over. I hope I'm past that now and have a little bit of wisdom, enough wisdom to say with honesty, this is what I want for my life. I want to live well, and I want to finish strong for God. Is that what you want? If so, um, what are you doing today that will make sure that will happen? What commitments, what disciplines, what steps of obedience are you taking today and tomorrow and the next day that will ensure that you will live well and finish strong? Or are you just going, hope it all works out. I want to finish. I don't have this on the screen. Just, I just wanted you to listen to this. I shared this with you once before. It's so powerful. I want to close with this. This statement was written by a young African pastor who was martyred for his faith. It was found among his possessions. Please listen to this. I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The decision has been made. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. As a disciple of Christ, I will no longer look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, worldly talking, cheap giving, and tamed visions. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, power, or popularity. I don't have to be right, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, walk in victory, and labor in love. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road may be narrow. My way may be rough. My compassions may be few, but my guide is reliable and my mission is clear.
I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander at the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes and sees me, he will have no trouble recognizing me. My colors will be clear. May that be true of every one of us starting today. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that it brings to everything. And Lord, just taking these few minutes to see this snapshot from this man's life. Um, Lord, he ended up being a, a, an outstanding person in history but he didn't start out that way. He was just a teenager who had been taught about God and made a decision, made a decision early on that he was not going to defile himself with the things of the world. Oh, Lord, I, I pray you would continue to build that into every one of our hearts. We, we cannot stand on our own determination, but our determination helps us stand. We, we cannot stay faithful purely on our own commitment, but our commitment to you can help us stay faithful. So, Lord, um, give each of us today, I pray, one simple thing from you that we can begin intentionally building into our life, into our schedule, into our patterns, into our disciplines. So that down the road, when challenges come, it won't even be a question for us. We will have already determined, already made up our mind to stand true for you and to finish strong. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart. of my